Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Our candid conversation today is with Frederick DeBoer. He's a writer and academic whose research interests include standardized tests of college learning, writing assessment, second language writing, corpus linguistics, and educational policy. He runs a tremendously popular education blog called ANOVA and has been blogging consistently on education and other issues, including campus free speech debates, since 2008. Frederick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I usually provide a more thorough treatment of our guests' background before our interviews begin because I don't want to waste our guests' time asking them to repeat information that can easily be found on Google. But I wanted to do it a bit differently today because you have a particularly interesting background that I think is probably best explained by you. You bring a unique perspective to the campus free speech debate, so to speak. And and this perspective is informed by your political socialism and also your time spent on college campuses. I think the best place to start is probably with what you're doing now and then work our way back toward what got you first interested and in writing about education and then also the campus free speech debates. So you're currently at Brooklyn College in New York City, correct? Yeah, I uh, am a, a minor administrator at Brooklyn College. I work uh, with uh, student assessment and I do a lot of the accreditation work, uh, proving to our accreditation agency, to CUNY, to the state, and to the feds that uh, things are working the way they should be. Yeah, but you grew up in a college town. You spent most of your life in col- in the academy, in college environments. Am I right? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up... Uh, quite literally, uh, on Wesleyan University's campus, uh, where my father was a uh, theater professor. Uh, his father was, in fact, a professor of education at, at the University of Illinois. Um, I got my master's at the University of Rhode Island, so I was there for a couple years, and I, did, I got a Ph.D. in four years at uh, Purdue University in uh, Indiana. been on a campus most of my life. Yeah, I went to school at Indiana University, and I think there's supposed to be some sort of rivalry between IU and Purdue, but I could really care less. <laughs> Uh, but you, you know, what was your image of the academy growing up? Well, it's you know, it's um, it's hard to know. It's hard to have perspective on just what's your own perspective, right? Like um, growing up around college kids was just like what my life was growing up in an academic household was my, what my my life was you know i'm i'm a fourth generation phd which is a little unusual um I, you know i uh this is sort of the, the sea in which i've always swum um i was aware that it was a little bit unusual and i've always known that campus is kind of a special place but to me um you know the the context i grew up in were um were the arts uh, was academia and socialism. Yeah. Now, did your image of the academy when you were growing up, does that, does that image reflect the reality that you've lived since you've actually entered the academy yourself? You know, I mean, the universities are all have their own sort of special individual cultures, and Wesleyan um, is particularly being a small liberal arts school, very small liberal arts school, mm-hmm. uh, and an elite one um, is a very particular kind of vision of campus life. It certainly was different from Purdue in a lot of ways, but there is, you know, a certain degree of shared um, culture to all universities, and in particular. Um, even now, a sense of them as being somewhat removed from time and being somewhat removed from the rest of uh, culture and society that um, is part of what makes them unique. Yeah, and how did your politics develop? And I think it's worth asking that question because your political ideology is discussed often in your writings and especially on issues of campus politics. Have you always approached these cultural issues or political issues from a socialist perspective? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in a very left-leaning household. Um, you know, my father was uh, someone of the left, as was my mother. Uh, my grandfather uh, was actually the subject of the Broyles Bills. He was uh, it's a 
sort of proto-McCarthyite anti-communist bills in Illinois state politics in the 40s and 50s. Uh, he was targeted by, um, named specifically by these bills um, as a subversive because he was a, a Communist Party member and a, uh, a civil rights and civil liberties uh, activist. And he really uh, had his reputation destroyed by uh, these sort of sustained assaults on his um, uh, his academic freedom as a subversive who was supposedly, uh, you know, manipulating uh, college students. Um, but he survived that thanks to the institution of tenure. Um, and so I was growing up. I brought, was brought up in a household that was very um, committed to socialist principles, but was also aware of the risks of when um, academic freedom and the freedom of expression are curtailed on campus, because that was what my father grew up experiencing. Um, and I was also grew up in a household full of my parents' friends who were, you know, artists and uh, weirdos. I, you know, my father, before he came to Wesleyan, was a, uh, a director in the black box theater scene here hmm. in New York for 10 years. And so I, I grew up around, you know, um, all kinds of uh, cultured people. Uh, you know, queer people were part of my context from when I was born. Um, all kinds of artists and dreamers and philosophers and people who kind of lived on the margins of society. So that was all sort of part of my perspective growing up. And like I said before, it didn't seem unusual to me. It just seemed like the way things were. So was that part of the reason you decided to explore a career in academia? Yeah, I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> so you have you have this uh, strong affinity for the academic life, then, and that's that's probably a good transition into the first area of substance I want to talk with you about, which is your recent high-profile piece about campus censorship in the Los Angeles Times. The piece was called "Republicans Don't Trust Higher Ed." That's a problem for liberal academics. I know you've written about this topic before on your blog. In this piece, you use as your hook a recent Pew survey that found that only 36% of Republicans believe colleges and universities have a positive effect on the way things are going in the country versus 58% who say they have a negative effect. Among Democrats, uh, the Pew survey also found that 72% of Democrats think that academia has a positive impact on society as opposed to 19% who do not. So let's start first by addressing what you think is driving this finding that poses an existential threat at this point to uh, the academy, which you hold near and dear to your heart. Sure. Well, uh, you know, as that piece says, there's been movement recently, which is a problem. There's always been a pretty durable uh, gap in between the support of liberals and the support of conservatives, the support of Democrats and the support of Republicans uh, for the academy. But um, it's begotten that sort of like so many other things it seems like has been um, intensified recently and that's college has become one of the major sites of the culture war mm-hmm. um, now I think it's important to say the day-to-day operations of thousands of colleges uh, are usually sort of untroubled by campus politics um, these tend to be still fairly unusual incidents that we're talking about but it the thing about culture war is that it's fueled by anecdote and it's fueled by emotion and it's fueled by perception. And so those things matter. And uh, protests on campus, some of which I support and some of which I don't, uh, have contributed to the perception among Republicans and conservatives that are not welcome on campus. Uh, and uh, to my, uh, from my vantage point, I think that there really has been a change in culture where we were once more accepting of conservative ideology on campus. Uh, And that's a bad thing because, as I say in the piece, you know, you don't have to have any sympathies for conservatives or their ideas to recognize that particularly our state institutions, our public uh, colleges and universities, um, they are explicitly, in most cases, explicitly chartered and funded to be nonpartisan, non-ideological institutions. And when one of the two major political parties is convinced that the academy isn't serving them, that is a direct threat to our funding. Uh, and ultimately, in the long run, funding is what really creates power. And, and there's been some sociological research on what happens when you create an environment where there are dissenting viewpoints, or in, in this case, multiple viewpoints. Uh, I think Cass Sunstein did a little research here and said that when you put a group of judges who all believe on the same, the same thing, when you put them on a panel, they're 
their verdicts are often more extreme in whichever ideological direction they sit than they would otherwise be if there was one dissenting voice in the room. And, and you, in your piece, had a very interesting, you pointed to a very interesting study that found that only 14% of professors identified as Republican on college campus, um, as opposed to a, a vast majority who identified as Democrats. And that was, that was back in 2006. So we don't know where those numbers sit now, what, 11 years later? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's right. So what do you think is the long-term outcome of this, and, and why is it a problem? I, I think now, of course, to the debate surrounding the protests at Evergreen State University, uh, where after that debate captured the public's attention, there were moves by state representatives to defund the school. You also look at what happened at Mizzou after the 2015 protests, uh, where I think actually the, the, the state lessened the uh, appropriation for the school. I could be mistaken on that. And then you've also seen the debates about tenure in Wisconsin. So do you think you'll see more of this as the culture war heats up on campus? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that an inevitable consequence is that because the Republicans tend to be so dominant at the state level, particularly in the states that they control, um, I think they're going to see this as just an ideological football. They're going to use it as an opportunity to score some red meat with their constituents. And it also obviously sort of helps them with their uh, with their sort of austerity ideology because they are, they are tax cutters and spending cutters. Mm-hmm. And so many of them will say, well, why should we be funding these institutions at all? I mean, you know, it's – there's – well, part of the problem with the contemporary left is the contemporary left does not understand what power is. We have a fundamentally sort of broken idea about like what actual power actually looks like in the real world. Um, and so, excuse me, uh, if you, you know, if you're someone on campus who looks around and you see ideological conformity about your ideas, and you have the power to socially shun somebody who steps outside of the line of those ideas, if you see that the media and publishing world seem to echo your own ideology and your own sort of point of view about uh, politics. If you have control of sort of the, uh, the superego of our culture to sort of dictate what right and wrong looks like, um, you might mistake that for power. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, all those things are just discourse, right? All those things are symbolic. Actual power is, among other things, the ability to, to uh, cut off the lights, the funding in a university, right? You're going to see this clash between two different kinds of power, like the power of the sort of moral authority that the left thinks that it has won for itself and the actual political authority that the right has meticulously built over decades. And in that kind of a clash, it's obvious who's going to win and who's going to lose. Do you think that the academy is blind to this threat? In your piece, you write that uh, your fellow academics don't grapple with the simple pragmatic realities of political power and how it threatens vulnerable institutions whose funding is in doubt. Right. So there's, I mean, for one thing, as I mentioned before, there is a kind of bubble effect on the the campus uh, where people in colleges and universities often can mistake the walls of the campus for sort of the walls of the world. Uh, many things about academia's culture um, kind of make it easy to forget about life outside of campus. But it's also, I think, um, again, a sense, you know, the the Internet in particular has created these echo chamber effects where it's really hard for people to understand how many people disagree with them. If you go on Twitter um, and you... Uh, look at sort of this uh, sort of incredible sensitivity with which people talk about race um, mm-hmm. and gender, right? At least in the establishment, sort of the like uh, the sort of non-alt-right, not deliberately provocative side. You might mistake that for being something that is sort of universally understood. But so, for example, I would hesitate to use the word crazy on Twitter because that is sort of perceived as ableist now, mm-hmm. right? It's perceived as being disrespectful to people with mental illness. That's a kind of um, language rule that simply doesn't exist in most of the world. But unfortunately, academics are plugged into a kind of elite, educated, urbane, um, liberal kind of a culture where it's very easy to mistake the rules of that culture for the rules of the entire world. Yeah, well, actually, one of my colleagues here at FIRE who has been reading you for years at this point wanted me to ask you about speech restrictions and in-group signaling, which I guess you have tackled in your writing implicitly or explicitly in the past. The idea being that in some quarters, embracing an intolerance for dissenting speech or even the way that one speaks um, 
using certain language of the well-to-do academic is a way to signal in-group status and the attainment of some certain socioeconomic status. In your experience, do you feel that this is a real phenomenon? I think you've already suggested that you do. And if so, how can you tell this? Well, it's it's a class-based phenomenon. I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's important to say the sort of the, the language of intersectionality, uh, talk of words like ableism, which most people don't know what that is, um, you know, knowing the codes for, uh, for example, I remember there used to be um, pretty strict rules about whether you put an asterisk at the end of the word, of the word trans or not. Mm-hmm. These kind of like very minute and very exacting kind of language standards are not something that you're just born with, tabula rasa, right? You, you pick them up from being in a certain social, social and cultural milieu. That cultural and social milieu is overwhelmingly sort of affluent liberalism. And it is associated with college education. One of the things that you're doing when you go to an elite college is you're going through a finishing school in the kind of ways that you signal your tribal allegiance to sort of liberal intelligentsia. Um, And so there's absolutely a, a part of this where the point of sort of favoring these speech restrictions is less about being sort of committed to a policy uh, of, against free speech, but it is about showing yourself to be a certain kind of person who has a certain kind of politics. Yeah, one of the things I find difficult, I came to the world of higher education sort of as an outsider. I went to a public college uh, and then started working at FIRE, but I have a difficult time talking to my friends from back home in Chicago about the issues I work on because they don't think about this stuff as much as I do. And if I talk to them about some of these concepts that are driving a lot of my work on campus, things like intersectionality or, or discussions of things like ableism, one, I don't think they'll understand it. And two, I think they just sort of laugh at it and not out as any sort of animus to the people that those ideas are supposed to take into account, just because that's not their world. And if you if you come at it without having grappled with the concepts a lot, you'll think it's absurd. I mean, these are guys who watch professional football on the weekends and drink light beer. They're not spending a lot of time in, in textbooks uh, dealing with like critical race theory, for example. Yeah, I mean, these codes are incredibly complex and they require um, not necessarily a lot of reading because I think a lot of people engage with them without reading anything, but they definitely require that you kind of pick up on the lingo and that you know the sort of ins and outs about sort of how to talk about these things. Um, And I'm someone who has the ability to do that because I grew up in a left-leaning household, because I grew up in an educated household, because I went through many, many years of uh, higher education in in the humanities. But not everybody is like that. And the funny thing about the sort of the privilege frame is the privilege frame is associated with social liberalism. But um, being able to talk this way is itself an artifact of privilege. Yeah. Well, can you describe a little bit for our listeners this concept of intersectionality, which we're hearing a lot more about on campus and, again, where that fits in here? Sure. Well, it's important to say that with all of these theories, there's a difference between the theory itself as it was originally written and intended to be, and then the kind of, um, the sort of uh, exaggerated version, the sort of grotesque version, the sort of um, game of telephone version that actually becomes part of the sort of social world. So intersectionality is simply the idea that um, we can't think about injustices um, as being uh, sort of distinct from each other, but that the different kind of identities that we know are associated with injustice and marginalization, um, uh, they interact with each other in in complex ways. So rather than sort of seeing oneself as a a black person or as a woman, you look at how your sort of your uh, lived experience is changed by the intersection of the different kind of um, uh, ways in which these oppressions sort of interact. The thing about this is that um, part of the purpose of the original frame of intersectionality was it was a critique of a certain brand of identity politics. It was intended to say that um, you can't get too simplistic and sort of say, well, I uh, am sort of the more bereaved person in this exchange because I come from a less oppressed uh, position. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things that intersectionality was intended to do was to talk about how black women are marginalized by black men, for example. In other words, that the fact that their status, their shared status as black did not eliminate the, the sort of unique um, role of sexism in their lives, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
class was another one. You know, it's really incredible that nowadays people will tell you that they don't care about class because they believe in intersectionality. But it's funny you say that because uh, I told Fire President and CEO Greg Lukianoff that I was talking to you, and one of his questions for me to ask you was what happened to class in modern campus politics because he sees it as having fallen out of favor. You hear much more about race and sexual orientation, for, for example. Well, class was originally one of the things that was presumed to intersect in intersectionality, but it's, it's fallen out of favor for a variety of reasons, one of the biggest ones being that the elite private liberal arts colleges where these things are taught are economically elite spaces. You know, Middlebury College, where we had the, the whole Charles Murray uh, fiasco, yeah. Middlebury College has more students who come from the top 1% of families than they do from the bottom 60% of families combined. Okay. <laughs> That is an immensely wealthy space. And so one of the things that happens is that as people adopt these identities that are based on these politics, as they come to see them less as just like a set of beliefs that they hold, but as a uh, sort of a, a statement of their whole being, they start to sand away things that might be inconvenient to them or uncomfortable for them. So if you're someone who grew up affluent and then you go to get a you know, standard liberal arts college at a um, – at a, say, uh, Amherst College or at Emory or somewhere, um, and you are surrounded by other affluent people, you are necessarily going to stop talking about race if you find that too uncomfortable to think about. And so, uh, if you talk about class, excuse me. And so, class has fallen out of favor in part simply because the people who promulgate these uh, these theories the most tend to be people who feel themselves to be somehow implicated by class and so they don't want to talk about it. Mm, that's an interesting insight. The, uh, spe- you know, sort of along the same lines, another question that Greg wanted me to ask you um, dealt with his own experiences. He says he had never really run into a sincere effort to dismiss a talk that he's given um, as white privilege until about 2013 or 2014. And for the first two years, uh, that he was seeing these arguments used against him, it was overwhelmingly coming from white people. And Greg has said, or has always thought, that the defenders of privilege theory used used to argue that using it rhetorically is using it wrong. Is that true? And do you only ever see these arguments towards privilege being used as a rhetorical tool? I mean, privilege, you know, the privilege theory, again, is one of these things where... Um, at the, at the root of it, there is a correct observation, right, is, mm-hmm. is that we all carry with us different levels of um, empowerment uh, and uh, different levels of sort of material uh, standing in society because of how we're born into these different demographics. I've never in my life doubted that um, I have white privilege in the sense that I benefit as from being a white person in all n- number of ways. But the frame has become so all-encompassing and so overpowering that it has drained, sort of drained the space for uh, uh, for other kinds of analyses that are m- more useful, right? Um, in an exchange between a more privileged and a less privileged person, sometimes the more privileged person is correct, right? Like Mm -hmm. having less privilege does not sort of magically have a sort of shroud of correctness um, land on you. It's also the case that, you know, privileged people are good to have on your side sometimes because privileged people are more likely to get done what you need to get done thanks to their privilege. Uh, Gatry Spivak, who is a... um, uh, a critical theorist, a post-structuralist, um, quite notorious uh, in, um, and well-known and celebrated in um, sort of post-colonialism and other places like that. Uh, she has been said in the past that she acknowledges her privilege, so she was born into a high caste in Indian society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, she said that she acknowledges her privilege and she is very happy to have it because it helps her to navigate the world and create change. Um, and then the last thing about privilege is that, you know, it becomes a kind of political Calvinism. If you say, I have uh, privilege, so I can't, uh, I, I have white privilege, and that's sort of, that's existential to who I am. It's something I was born with and can't change. A lot of people are going to say, well, then why am I going to bother to do anything politically, right? Like, if, if, I'll, if I'll always have the stain of privilege on me, why should I get organized? And in fact, what we need people to do is precisely to get working. And so for all those reasons, I just don't think the, the privilege frame is very useful anymore. Yeah, and do you think that's driving a lot of the discussion about a phrase I hate to use, but what's widely understood as political correctness and the backlash against that? 
Yeah, I mean, it, all these things have sort of, uh, you know, part of what's happening with all of them is there's been this ratcheting effect where um, because these are socially competitive spaces, right, like on campus, in the faculty lounge, uh, in the activist meeting, on lefty Twitter, right, everyone is trying to outdo themselves uh, in what a writer, a, a woman of color, actually, for the all once called the Woke Olympics, which is, you know, mm-hmm. a... Uh, um, a competition between people to be more righteous. And what happens when you're competing is you're always trying to take it to the next level. And so, so you find a more ridiculous position and a more ridiculous position and a more ridiculous position to the point where you have websites like Everyday Feminism, which has repeatedly published articles that say things like, for example, I see what you mean it should be a considered an offensive phrase because not everyone can see, right? Or, yeah. the, or the word take a stand, Right, because mm-hmm. uh, not everyone can stand. Not everyone can stand. Or, for example, when um, people were referring to the Pulse nightclub shooter as homophobic, some people com- complained that simply to call him homophobic was erasing by people. For example, mm-hmm. and then others said that homophobic is itself inherently ableist because phobia is a medical condition. And so you have these sort of this endlessly ratcheting up uh, sort of hunt for offense. That leaves average people, even people who are committed against racism and sexism, even decent people with progressive ideas about society. Um, it just leaves them feeling so frustrated and so hopeless over uh, ever sort of meeting these rules that eventually some of them give up and wave, wave their hands at the whole thing. And then a smaller subset of them even go ahead and, and sort of embrace like sort of conservatism because they feel such a powerful backlash against getting told what to do. So, yeah, what you're saying here is that they, people are critical of people who aren't, quote-unquote, woke yet. And so it's almost as, – as soon as the criticism arrives, there's no door open to educate them about these concepts because they, they, the criticism came so vehemently at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, education is unfortunately not something that often sort of has a space to happen now in a lot of left circles because um, they're seen as such uh, such a sort of necessary self-defensive need to like immediately condemn in uh, incredibly vocal terms anyone who does or says anything wrong that you destroy the possibility for education. Yeah, and there was an interesting article that I know you've seen in National Review with the headline that read, the next right-wing populist will win by attacking American higher education. And I've made the point before that I don't think Donald Trump is entirely aware of the culture war that's happening on campus. Uh, Many people who are in some way connected to higher ed are because it's on the front page of the New York Times or the Atlantic or any other number of publications almost every day at this point. But he had given a speech at Liberty University where just sort of offhand he said that he was going to defeat political correctness or censorship on college campus. And there was this uproar coming from the audience. And Donald Trump visibly was taken aback. And you don't see that from Donald Trump. So he wasn't, you know, this this writer for National Review was saying he wasn't aware of the culture war on campus and how much it resonates with conservatives or Republicans at this point. But if there is a right-wing populist who instead of or maybe in addition to attacking the media, goes after college campus, they could find a huge constituency in support of them. This, of course, coming back to your LA Times article saying the threats there, it's already started to materialize, but it could get way worse. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is the more that you sort of become a sort of symbolic a symbol of a of an ideology, a symbol of a particular political persuasion that makes you something that's more hated by the opposite persuasion. And college just, you know, every one of these protests, many of which I support wholeheartedly, many of which have um, noble goals, all of which come from a sincere political position. But there's been such a lack on the parts of students and the people who should be guiding them these people who should be mentoring them, there's such a lack of optics, such an uh, inability to think in strategic political terms about how this looks to the rest of the world and what would actually be in the long term the best for their movement. And unfortunately, there's a tendency to want to appear more radical to each other rather than to want to reach the most pragmatic solution to achieve a more radical end, which just makes this all these dynamics more intense. So... I wanted to ask you, 
do you support free speech as a means or as an end or both? Because you write in your L.A. Times article that given the endless controversies on college campuses in which conservative speakers get shut out and conservative students field silence, the public relations work is being done for the enemies of public education by those within the institutions themselves, as you just said. Uh, but you've wrote, written elsewhere that you find the persistent praise by conservatives of your work criticizing campus censorship as funny since your writing and activism is an effort to crush them and their their movement. So is your support for free speech a means to supporting an end such as public education? Or are you a strong believer in the principle of free speech too? Because I've seen elsewhere you say you're an old school liberal who believes in individual rights and that's in part um, the reason for your support of free speech. Yeah, I mean, in general, right, the, the idea that I am some kind of a contrarian or um, different kind of leftist is strange because all I've ever done is embraced traditional leftist beliefs. I am, in fact, a believer in the principle of, of free speech as well as other civil liberties precisely because I am a leftist. Um, you know, we have no history these days uh, in our contemporary society, so people forget these things. But um, supporting free speech puts me in the ranks of people like Karl Marx, uh, Frederick Who Engel. wrote some of the greatest polemics in support of a free press early on in his career. Of, of anyone, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Rosa Luxemburg, Frederick Douglass, uh, Leon Trotsky, all, all kinds of people that um, we... Uh, that we associate with being members of the of the radical left have for for decades and centuries supported free speech because it uh, because of the the principle is correct right as as leftists we want to increase freedom right the idea that the right has a monopoly on the language of freedom is a fight we should never have given up on um, and so I absolutely believe in the principle of free speech uh, and that's just com- it's completely in, in keeping with my overall radical leftist point of view it's only been in recent decades that people have developed this asinine belief that to support free speech is necessarily conservative. And you also, but you do believe that it is a means to an end in this case as well. And in situations where you do not hold the institutions of power, you necessarily depend upon this, this minority right that is protected by the First Amendment. You don't, of course, need a First Amendment for majority viewpoints. The vote protects majority viewpoints. Right. I mean, look, like I don't, you know, yeah, I, as I always say, the left needs free speech because the left is powerless. Right? We, we control such little things that we need civil liberties because civil liberties are primarily designed to protect the minority, and we are the minority. But the other thing is, you know, I ask people this, this all the time, what does it actually look like, the world in which the left is able to curtail free speech? Like, like first of all, how do we get that? I mean, you know, in order to curtail free speech by passing laws, we would have to pass a constitutional amendment, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I have a funny feeling we're not going to be able to get that done. Uh, and then once we got that law passed, if that was able to happen, like, what would it look like? Would we have some sort of tribunal that weighs what everyone says or what they, do- they don't? Or would we ban certain words or terms? I mean, the alt-right has demonstrated that they can always take something that didn't used to be considered offensive and turn it into something offensive. So any list that you came up with would be immediately out of date. There's no sort of sense of like what this would actually look like, how it would function, who would run it, um, how we would do it without increasing the power of the police state. And all that's because one of the things that's been true of the left my entire life is the left is unfortunately full of people who don't really want to win. It's full of people who find perpetually losing to be kind of comforting because when you have no power, when you never win, you have no... uh, uh, like there's no risk, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we stay firmly in the political margins forever, well then, hey, we can just sort of debate and think and do whatever we want because our our ideas will never be put into practice. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is what's going on here is that it's people who can't actually conceive of really shutting down free speech writ large in this in this country, and so they don't bother to come up with like an actual workable model of what they want. What they can do is they can use opportunistically um, they can make appeals to campus administrators who don't actually have their best interests at heart, but who, uh, for issues of PR and liability, sometimes will pretend to, um, to sort of be sort of petty censors in these very small spaces. And that's just never going to be work out to our best interest. In the and, and do you think that you see the movement for censorship so pronounced on college campus? Do you think that's because 
students on the left, faculty on the left, see their arguments holding more sway within those institutions, whereas outside those institutions they don't, because as you said before, Republicans control most uh, institutions of power, political power, outside of yeah. campus? You grasp, you grasp the spaces that you do appear to control more and more tightly out of frustration for all the places that you don't control. And also, again, like this has to be said, campus administrators are oftentimes siding with students who are fighting to censor, uh, not out of like some sort of actually sort of internally motivated progressive principle, which is laughable, but because um, the neoliberal university of the 21st century, students are customers and they want to please their customers. And also because university administrations, like the, the corporate sort of administrative side of the university, of which I unfortunately belong, uh, <laughs> is oriented towards conflict avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. Like the whole structure is set up not to achieve justice, but to avoid problems. And oftentimes the easiest way to do that is to just shut up students by appearing to give them what they want. Yeah, or shut up, shutting up faculty members as Northwestern University recently did with Alice Dreger when she published her bioethics journal and she resigned in protest. But how much do you, uh, you know, we've already spoken to this a little bit, but how much of this issue with campus censorship is a byproduct of the ballooning of administrators' role on campus? As I'm sure you're aware, in 2005, for the first time ever, administrators outnumbered full-time faculty on campus. Yeah, I mean, that, that's got to be seen as part of it. Uh, there's now some person who worries over every little spot on campus. And again, like, I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine a couple of years ago that you can find, um, which describes, it says, like, the real problem with uh, campus, like, campus activism right now is that it is caught in this corporate architecture that the students don't understand is a corporate architecture. You know, the... Um, the proliferation of deanlets and associate vice provosts and vice presidents um, is creating a class of, of individuals whose fealty is to the organization, and the organization is sort of represented by the rest of the bureaucrats and the rest of the administrators, and who, again, have like a, a conflict avoidance attitude, a liability avoidance attitude. And so there's some, because there's so many administrators now, there's someone, no matter what we're talking about, who kind of has jurisdiction over an issue, and they feel as part of their job is keeping the university out of trouble by trying to squelch problems before they happen. And, and they see that jurisdiction expanding, at least from my perception, I see a lot more surveillance by administrators of off-campus life. I mean, colleges are increasingly seeing the whole of a student's life as under their purview. You can look at Harvard, where they're going after students who grow, uh, join exclusive off-campus clubs with no connection to the university except for the fact that a number of students join them. You also see this with uh, the policing of students' social media accounts that they use off-campus. I was a student athlete at Indiana University, and my social media accounts were um, uh, surveyed, and I, I also was an athletics writer for an outside publication, and the media relations person for the university would read the articles I'd write for this outside publication. You also see campuses now uh, trying to adjudicate off-campus crimes. We see that with sexual misconduct a lot. And so it's almost as if they set up this big brother's watchful eye, and students almost have no life or are not allowed to have any life outside of that that exists on campus. Yeah, and it's part of, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure to the degree to which students actually would fight this because it's part of this greater sort of, uh, sort of dynamic of, you know, college sort of replicating childhood more than it is, than it is sort of the traditional function of being the, the gateway into adulthood where students more and more appear to want people to sort of take care of them from, uh, from the moment they arrive to the moment they leave. There's a sense that we're building this vast architecture to sort of always have directions for the students to always sort of decide where they can go and what they can do and how they're going to live their lives, uh, which I think is a mistake because we need to be helping to sort of shelter these people into young, independent lives. But um, the world's a scary place, and college can be comforting and a safe place to hide. Yeah, it's... Uh you know, the, you talk about the old school left. They're the ones that threw off in Loco Parentis in the 1950s and 60s, and it's almost as if some within those movements want to bring it back. Right. We're a liberation movement is what the left is, but it doesn't seem like a liberation movement these days. Yeah. So, you know, I, I spent some time overseas and had a chance to see what the university systems are like over there. And it, it's the universities over there don't see such a holistic um 
student body. They don't see a student body over which they have entire jurisdictions. Like you go to class and then you leave class and your connection to campus is sort of done. Um, I think the fact that that doesn't exist in the United States is is a benefit and a reason that a lot of students come to universities in the United States and a reason they're so successful. Uh, but you also lose something there in the civil liberty space. Right, exactly right. right. So you're an avid practitioner. Uh, we, we, we've, all, we've talked already about how you're a bit of a heretic uh, on the left, and you're an avid practitioner of what you often describe as critical solidarity. You criticize your friends on the left for what you see as poor judgment strategy and or philosophy. And uh, in a recent blog post, you took Angus Johnson to task. He's uh, an academic and historian of campus activism. Fire has uh, worked and debated with him (laughs) at various times during our existence. And you criticized his argument that the left needs to stop talking about dialogue and debate because those are just tools of power. That's um, a synopsis. a summary of his argument, and you asked him rhetorically or perhaps directly whether he had suggestions other than dialogue and debate to change minds. Do you think Angus's belief is prevalent on the left, and if so, do you think that's, you know, the big driver here? I mean, I do think it's prevalent, unfortunately, and it's, you know, it's based on, a del- again, like a delusional uh, sort of notion about what power is. If we don't convince people with debate and discourse, what recourse does the left have? Right. Mm-hmm. We certainly are not in a position to be dictating our interests with violence, and we're not going to be anytime soon. We don't already control establishment political power. Uh, we are trying to build a mass movement that could change that, but we're very far away from being able to do that in the short term. We don't have a lot of money. Um, we have the, the sort of control over certain aspects of the culture, particularly as it pertains to a sort of sense of shared morals in a sort of elite educated, affluent spaces, but we really lack power. And so if we don't ask people sort of to engage and to debate with them, then what do we do? How do we change the world? I have no idea. Yeah. And you say that part of that is is motivated by a sense of comfortableness in their lives. You write that the contemporary left is full of people who are keenly interested in fighting injustice to their credit, as you say, but who are not particularly uncomfortable in their lives themselves and thus are content to be the noble opposition. Right. It's, we are, unfortunately, um, as much injustice as there is in the world, there's a lot of people who, including me, certainly, mm-hmm. who are prominent voices on the left who are in spaces of relative material security. Um, I have a job, I pay my rent, I have health insurance, I have food. Um, And one of the things that happens is that the further that you get from sort of the actual material deprivation that you have, the more theoretical your politics can be and the less interested you can be in an immediate pragmatic solution to taking power. Yeah, and you also talk, of course, this whole discussion also implicates strategy, but you say, you, you ask rhetorically in your blog post, do you know what it sounds like to most people when you say there's no point in debating with those who oppress us? And you write, it sounds like I can't win this argument, so I'm not going to try. That's what it looks like. That's what it sounds like. It doesn't make you look noble. It makes you look weak. And I've, seen, I've actually seen that argument prevalent on the left. Bernie Sanders was on CBS's Face the Nation and was asked about uh, campus protests. And he said, what are you afraid of? Their arguments? He's like, go out there, debate them. I think people have a right to speak. And you have a right, if you're on a college campus, not to attend. You have a right to ask hard questions about the speaker if you disagree with him or her. But what, what, why should we be afraid of somebody coming on a campus or anyplace else and speaking? You have a right to protest. Uh, Van Jones, also at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, said, you know, I'm not going to pave the jungle for you so that your life is super easy. Um, you know, what are you afraid? Are you afraid to go out there and engage in dialogue and debate on these issues? That's how you win. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. So you're not you're not you're in you're in good company here. You're not alone. Right, that's true. Yeah, and uh, I mean, encouragingly, as bad as the trends have been, there's more and more people who are fed up with some of these habits on the left. I think. Yeah, I, I want to get close to ending our conversation here because I, I, I know you have a job to get to. Um, but I do want to turn to a piece that you wrote for Medium uh, called There's No Pro-Campus Censorship Theory for Me to Debate. We're talking here about Angus Johnson, who suggested that it's not 
worth debating uh, with your oppressors. Um, you actively go out there and say, I want to debate with with these people. Um, you, but you've written that there's no good arguments for campus censorship, or at least none that to you are coherent or consistent. Do you take flack for saying this? Do you take flack because of your free speech advocacy? And if so, what form does this criticism take, regardless of whether you think that the criticism has any intellectual weight? I, I do take a ton of flack. Uh, mostly involves people yelling at me on Twitter. Um, Which I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say here, I, if I didn't have to be on Twitter for my job, I would be off it. It's full of the smuggest, snarkiest criticism. It's almost like you get more retweets and more likes if you can come up with some like snarky, passive aggressive, dismissive tweet uh, to someone who. Uh, disagrees with you. There's almost no goodwill that exists on Twitter. Yeah, there's a, a culture of irony on sort of online left spaces that um, I think is just a mistake. Um, it's very bitter and toxic. And the, the problem is that, like, it, like, it has no substance. I mean, again, like when I say that there's no pro sort of campus censorship uh, theory for me to debate, I don't mean that like there's none that I find credible. I mean that I've never had someone kind of articulate to me a clear sort of defined, this is what I actually think should happen and why and when and here's how we'll get there kind of a thing. It's again, it's this sort of unformed sort of vague anger and resentment towards people who are identified as being pro-free speech, but it's not part of like a workable, meaningful academic sort of um, plan, like a way to sort of like implement uh, a way to create change. And again, as you suggest, in some of these discursive spaces like Twitter um, and some places on campus, the really important thing is just to indicate that you are sort of rejecting socially the people who make the arguments that you don't like, rather than sort of actually laying out principles and defining an alternative. Yeah, well, there is, I think, some sort of first principle uh, that these campus censors or would-be censors do point to. And I, and I think of probably the best articulation of this came from Ulrich Baer, who's an NYU professor and wrote a piece for the New York Times called What Snowflakes Get Right About Free Speech. And he, he has these lines in there. He, you know, he says, uh, when in views invalidate the humanity of, of some people, they restrict speech as a public good. Uh, he has some other things in here that says the parameters of public speech must be continually redrawn to accommodate those who previously had no standard. standard. Um, and and he, he, his argument gets to the point where it says, like, censorship is good because it creates a greater environment for free speech for those marginalized communities that didn't have access to the platform or felt as though they couldn't speak before. Have you seen that argument? I, I've read his piece, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know where there is any articulation of a rule that would actually be able to be used by an actually existing human being. The problem is that they, would, they wouldn't backfire. Right. I mean, people claim that they're that everything is dehumanizing of marginalized populations. The, the question of what functions to dehumanize marginalized populations is itself a matter of debate. But Bear just assumes that that is going to be defined in the way that he thinks it should be. Uh, there's, you know, it's, if I say, for, for example, I know academics on campus who believe that it should be uh, that it should be restricted to argue against affirmative action, race-based affirmative action on campus. Now, I'm a strong supporter of the policy of affirmative action, but uh, the fact of the matter is. A majority of Americans, depending on the polling and how the question is asked, defend or excuse me, are critics of of race-based affirmative action. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that we're going to be banning an opinion that a majority of people outside of the campus believe. Uh, I've had people say that, um, for example, they would allow a student. This was in last year, and then the the context of the election, they would allow a student to say, "I'm with her." This, you know, the campaign slogan of Hillary Clinton. But they wouldn't allow a student to say, make America great again, which is the campaign slogan of Donald Trump. And so you're saying right off the bat, one of the two major American parties is not able to be represented in this debate where the other one is. And that's just, you know, I don't understand how that can possibly function in a pluralistic democracy like we have. But again, it comes down to uh, the assumption that everyone is going to assume, uh, sort of agree with your basic political values 
in the spaces where you're having these arguments. Yeah, we've also seen this discussion happen a lot in the context of the immigration debates. Uh, people saying that arguments for more restrictive immigration policy denies people their humanity, therefore we should not allow a platform for it on campus. And that it gets to the same point you you were just making about there's a, it might not be a majority, but there's a broad swath of the general public who believes in these positions and to tell them that they can't argue for those positions because it denies other people's humanity, I, I think it's strategically wrong um, in many ways. Uh, philosophically, it, it doesn't carry any weight because the basis here, the first principle here, is that the argument denies humanity, and that's a necessarily subjective or amorphous term. Right. And the thing is, I mean, look, even the Democrats, the, like Barack Obama, the, his administration deported people by the hundreds of thousands or the millions. Mm-hmm. Um, the Democrats policy platform does not have any kind of universal amnesty. It, too, involves deportations. So you're talking about rejecting the, you know, saying that it's, you should not be able to voice opinions that are in and of themselves, like the majority opinions of the United States and shared by both of the major parties. How in any vision of power is that ever going to be something that you can possibly accomplish? I don't understand it. Well, they may think that they can accomplish it on campus, where it the administrators are at least responsive in many cases to their concerns, although you say that those aren't motivated for good reasons. So they think they, they can exist there, but they're never going to convince anyone off campus. Uh, for example, the, the, no, the normal Donald Trump supporter uh, of these arguments, and they're never going to win as a result, because the only way to win, as you've articulated in previous blog posts and on this podcast, is through dialogue and persuasion. That's right. Yeah, I, 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 somet- I speak on campuses and I sometimes am presented with this humanity argument and I, you know, I try and lend students a sympathetic ear and try and understand what their arguments are so that I can best address them. And one of the questions I always ask is, what do you mean by my humanity and, and how does that fit into any sort of pragmatic framework? Uh, me as a free speech argument, I view free speech as my ability to bear witness to the world and speak my mind to that witnessing. And for you to say that I can't speak because of white privilege or some other sort of argument is for for me to deny my ability to see the world, to exist in it, and to converse with other people about it. It's to deny me the vehicle. And so I could argue that that denies me my humanity. It just seems like it can be used by anyone to say, you know, uh, you're not letting me be who I am and not letting me speak my mind. Yeah, it's just an ad hoc rationalization. That's all. Do you think? Do you think that this is? Do you think that there's a lot of free speech denialism on campus among some some segments of the population? I, I know you have written the piece. Yes, campus activists have sent, have attempted to censor completely mainstream views, but we get this argument all the time uh, from some journalists that like uh, this doesn't actually exist, and to the extent it does exist, it's only a few high-profile examples? I'm, I, I mean, I, I, am, I would say it is a number of high-profile examples. Mm-hmm. The way that you spot a trend is by looking for indicative examples, and it is connected to a broader culture where lots of people that I know, intelligent people, people who are politically conscious, now are unwilling to defend a principle of free speech on campus on the merits. And so these examples don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in a broader world of discourse on the left that is more and more antagonistic to to free speech on campus, and as I'm someone who believes in those things, and as both a lefty and an academic, it's naturally my, my business to talk about these things, I am reserved the right to be concerned about these changes. Yeah, I'd really like to get Ulrich Baer, uh, Professor Baer, on this podcast so I can discuss his article with him, and uh, I hope to do that in a future episode, or better yet, to get <laughs> you and him on a podcast or another some, uh, in a, some other public place to debate these issues. I think there'd be a lot of good that would come out of that. Uh, you might disagree with me, but I want to close up here uh, with two final quick questions. Uh, the first of which, what what do you think the future of the left looks like? I am uh, cautiously optimistic that what we are seeing with the recent enthusiasm for socialism uh, represents something real. It is the, the beginning of a very long and 
torturous process of gaining power. Uh, I think that we are getting ahead of ourselves in the way that we're talking about um, this growth. Uh, we have still tiny numbers, tiny influence, tiny money, uh, tiny uh, elected offices held. And so I do think that there's the beginning of something, but it's going to be a very, 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 very long thing. Yeah. And what do you think? Am, that, oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I, I am not optimistic about the growing illiberalism among the left right now. Um, I think that it's going to take another period of, um, I mean, you know, part of the reason that we were so adamant about free speech was, again, because of the McCarthy era. And I think that it's going to take um, some kind of reprisals from above, uh, some sort of reprisals from a, a conservative government that shuts up our free speech to remind us of how important those virtues are. Yeah, and I'm doing my best to get some members of the old school sort of ACLU left to come on the podcast and, ma- and make these arguments to some of the constitu- constituencies on campus that we see calling for liberal actions. Uh, I've gotten Arye Nair on the podcast, former executive director of the ACLU during the Nazis in Skokie march. I've gotten Ira Glasser, who ran the ACLU to great success for about 25 years on the podcast. And, and they all speak to this sort of same trend that you speak to, um, about a growing illiberalism, uh, both within the left and, and on the right as well, uh, with the growing populist movement and some of the critiques that you're seeing of the media. Uh, but I think some of them, some of the people I spoke with privately and also publicly, feel like um, they're, they're knocking on a closed door and yeah. that they're not reaching the, the students uh, in the way that they want to. And it might be because they're older and students always have this sort of transgressive nature about them. I always told myself if I got to the point where I was saying kids these days, uh, I'd find a new line of work. But you're in good company. I mean, you're there with a lot of the old school left critiquing the left, this idea of critical solidarity that you talk about. Yeah. I mean, look, if you you watch the Evergreen uh, video, even a lot of people who have been really (laughs) disinclined to criticize campus activists look at that and say, what is going on here? You know, those those students think that they're doing something that is going to result in some sort of meaningful victory for them. And to almost everyone else in the world, it looks like the most ridiculous behavior imaginable. I, I do that's tell not, that's not sustainable. Like we can't we cannot be that movement if we want to continue to enjoy any influence at all. The, I do try and say that Evergreen State is a unique college, kind of like Oberlin, uh, where you've seen some of these similar protests movements before. I mean, it it brands itself as a progressive college, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's typical of the average college. Uh, Unfortunately, it's made to look that way because it's so high profile right now. But one could argue, if you come from the left, that that's eventually where we'll go if there's no pushback. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's the fear. Is It's the trend and the culture within the left that will later dictate what is defined as normal is my fear. Yeah. And my final question here for you, what do you think the future of higher education looks like? Uh, you know, the university is a durable institution. Um, it has been there's been claims that it's going to be going away for ages. I don't think it's credible that, for example, all online education is going to sweep in um, and cl- shutter all the universities, which is a claim that's been being made for 15 years at least and which has never come true. Um, I do think that we are seeing a slow contraction of universities um, as the the American population. The number of teenagers is going down, um, and we're slowly letting out air from the balloon, um, which will result in here and there, I think, a few closures of some probably not very good and mostly nonprofit colleges, so I can't worry about that. I think the institution will endure. Um, I, I think that tenure right now is at a sort of stabilization point after being sort of sainted down for so many years. But whether that stabilization will, ha- will sort of hold on for much longer, I'm not sure. Um, it doesn't look great uh, from where I'm sitting. Yeah. Well, in the context of the things we've been discussing, our, our president, Greg Lukianoff, has always said um, that, you know, well, he said he's recognized that there's an increasing polarization in this country that we're unwilling to talk across lines of differences or debate um, Mm -hmm. critical issues uh, and engage in any sort of dialogue with people who don't look like this or don't come from the same socioeconomic background or, as we've discussed, speak in the same terms that we speak. And he says if there's one institution in America that's ready-made to address these problems, it's the academy, and that's why it's ever more important that we take on these issues or these these examples of a liberalism on college campuses because we need these institutions now more than ever. 
agree. I agree entirely. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're, we're pretty much done here. I know you're busy. Can you let our listeners know where they can find your work? Yeah. Um, if you Google my name, Frederick DeBoer, um, I'll pop up. It's uh, F-R-E-D-R-I-K-D-E-B-O-E-R.com. That's FrederickDeBoer.com. Um, or if you uh, Google for the ANOVA blog, I'll pop up at the top. ANOVA, A-N-O-V-A, correct? Yep. 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 Just search for ANOVA blog and it'll come up. And, and you're on Twitter, right? Much to your own chagrin, I know. Yeah, at Freddie DeBoer. Okay, great. Well, uh, Frederick, I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, keep up the good work. All right. I'll talk to you later. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215 315 0100. You can just leave a voicemail at that number. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to do one easy thing to help us attract new listeners to the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.